Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Without even recognizing it, you make hundreds of ethical decisions every day. Some of these decisions you probably don't even recognize as being grounded in ethical principles because they are so ingrained in your subconscious. The way you cross the road, how much you tip your waiter, or who you vote for in the next election are all decisions you make based on your own and society's expectations for what is ethical. AI, on the other hand, doesn't make decisions based on ethics. That is, unless ethical behavior is somehow picked up in the training data. Therefore, we must make ethical AI by design. But that is not easy. Many of the ethical dilemmas arising from AI are difficult to solve because the problems are so novel in a human context. For example, we already have self-driving cars that are statistically much less risky than human drivers, but sometimes AI will decide to drive straight through an obstacle like a tree, truck or pedestrian because it has misinterpreted the situation. Are those random accidents acceptable as long as we are safer statistically speaking? The answer is not obvious and we clearly need a framework for dealing with these ethical dilemmas at scale. To understand the unwieldy world of ethical AI, I recently spoke to James Brousseau, who is a philosopher at Pace University specializing in AI ethics. His academic research explores the human experience of artificial intelligence in areas of privacy, freedom, authenticity, and personal identity, and he works with organizations around the world to develop ethical AI applications. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss what ethical AI ethics is and why it's important. The most common dilemmas and challenges we face when it comes to AI ethics and how leaders can get prepared for managing and governing the ethical implications of using AI and operations, and much more. Enjoy the conversation. Here is James. James Brousseau, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It's so good to have you on the show. Jonas, thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here at a very early morning for you. For me, it's a happy hour, three o'clock in New York City. Nice day. Perfect. I'm happy. You're, you're having coffee. That's all right. I'm about to have my morning coffee. I should have had it before the interview, but uh, let's see how we go. Now, James, you are a professor of ethics and specifically AI ethics. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation for me and the audience. And I have given a bit of an introduction of you already, but could you tell us in your own words about yourself, your career and what you do? Sure. Happy to. So my training is in the history of philosophy and ethics, fairly standard sort of academic pathway of a professor. What happens in philosophy, philosophy is a different kind of animal for this reason. You can make a good case that every idea uh, that any philosopher has ever and will ever discuss is actually already discussed in Plato's dialogues. That is the fundamental theory uh, is already in place. So what that means, if, if we're going to continue doing philosophy ourselves, instead of just reading Plato and those, those who came after, we sort of need to do what our, all those between Plato and today have done, which is they've taken those traditional ideas and they've tried to see how they fit together with uh, changing contemporary reality. 
So the, the training and the basic conceptual framework that drives what I do is standard history of philosophy, Plato and Nietzsche and other names that are familiar. But where I deviate, where I have found a path which defines my role as distinct from that of others is by applying those ideas to some of the realities of artificial intelligence. I will just give a, a quick example. The, the kind of first area that I became interested in was a kind of distinction between getting what you want and wanting what you get. Let, <laughs> let me explain. Uh, I think getting what you want is, is pretty clear, right? I mean, let's say I want a ham sandwich and I go to the refrigerator and I get my ham sandwich. Wanting what you get is a little bit different and it fits very well with the potential that artificial intelligence, big data, and predictive analytics have to answer our wants, impulses, desires, and so on, to respond to those things even before we ourselves sense the want for, let's say, the, the ham sandwich. I mean, this happens to, in, in a simple terms, of course, this is not true now. But in simple terms, something like this happens, at least for me, when I'm going on Amazon, I live in New York City, so almost everything is delivered. So I'm on Amazon all the time. Amazon is pretty good at putting onto my, flashing onto my screen when I'm just about to enter the checkout, are you sure you don't want coffee or, or something, right? I say, oh yeah, you're right. I did want that, right? So actually I got it before I wanted it. Now, as I say, this is a trivial, of course, this is a trivial example, but philosophers, we live for thought experiments and for taking experiences like that and saying, all right, let's imagine that everything was really like that. Let's imagine we always got what we wanted before we knew what it was. And then from there, you could ask a question, you could say something like, well, traditionally human beings, we always think that free will is something we want and we right we want the liberty to choose and to do things but if we're living in a reality where big data and predictive analytics are serving us everything we want maybe through tinder i'm getting the right wife maybe through linkedin i'm getting the right job if all these things are coming to me before i even know i want them then it is free will worth having anymore do we want free will. So in any case, <laughs> as I we were talking before the interview, I said, I'm a philosopher, so I could go on for hours. I could go from here until next Thursday. But I, I will just stop there and say, all right. So that's sort of how I got from philosophy into artificial intelligence on the first step. And then very quickly, the, the second step is, if you spend all your time thinking about the kinds of stuff that I was just discussing, you will quickly go insane. So you need to also find some more practical kinds of applications. And that second impulse uh, led me to what I suspect most of your listeners will be more interested in hearing about, which is how applied AI ethics actually works in today's economic world. And so that's the, that second step is how I got into um, doing applied AI ethics in a kind of everyday life, let's say. Very interesting. And I have no doubt we'll be exploring those very topics throughout this interview, because I have myself come across this many times, this uh, conundrum of, am I getting what I want? Or am I just being served up uh, what the algorithm thinks I want? And I'm actually being biased. I'll give you an example in a minute. But first up, could you explain what the field of AI ethics is and why it's so important? Right. So uh, as I started sort of indicating in that, in that first answer, there, there are the two, kind of the two branches. Right? And so the, the first one was, was this question about free will that I was discussing. And then you also entered into that, that fascinating topic sort of by, by almost reversing what I was saying and saying, okay, maybe what I'm getting is, is not what I want, but I'm being made to think I want that. Right. So there's, it's almost a kind of a room full of mirrors discussion. So that's one thing that AI ethics is. But then, as I also noted at the end, the other thing that AI ethics is, and what is sort of more common, is the idea that, that ethics is just about, AI ethics, 
is just about understanding our technology in terms of human values and setting up that kind of understanding next to the sort of technical parameters or metrics that we, that we talk about. So for example, you can talk about a supercomputer and in technical terms, you can talk about how many calculations it does per second, but then running alongside that on the ethics front, then we say, well, we don't really care about the number of calculations, but we do care about whether or not, sort of returning to the example you just suggested, we do care about whether or not these machines are serving our autonomy, our self-determination, our ability to decide for ourselves, or are they somehow contracting those things, right? And your example of getting a suggestion on LinkedIn or so on, this is a perfect example of the human autonomy question and the value there, or sort of what the philosopher of ethic, the ethicist, AI ethicist, wants to fasten onto is that idea of autonomy and say, okay, let's evaluate the machine in those terms. It's not how fast it goes, it's how well it serves or disserves human autonomy or human privacy or fairness or a set of other values that we, that we could we could discuss. So that was the, the first part of, the, of what AI ethics is, uh, is the reason for it or the, the process of it is investigating technology in terms of human values. The reason why we want to do this, the big reason, is in order to make sure that the AI technology is serving humanity instead of us actually spinning around and serving the, the technology. A simple example of this would be something like the, the kind of filter bubbles that we see on Facebook, where it seems like users, because they're being driven to become angry at things and they're engaging mainly in terms of conflict and so on, at least sometimes, it seems like in those cases of a filter bubble, and especially in politics and that kind of thing, it, it seems like the human users are actually serving the technology. Right? We're being twisted into almost machines ourselves that just send vile insults back and forth and so on. So I, I think that the, the overarching reason that we want to, to have AI ethics is to try to ensure that, as I say, that the technology serves the human being instead of the human being serving the technology. That's one reason. Uh, a, a second reason why we're going to need AI ethics certainly is this, that these technologies are creating dilemmas that we have not conceived of before or, or thought of before. I can give you a good example of this. I am working right now on a case with some computer scientists and some doctors in Brescia, Italy. And here's what happened in Brescia, Italy. This is the start of COVID. Hospitals in Italy, you might remember that Italy was one of the first places to really take a wave of this stuff. Uh, hospitals in Italy were overwhelmed, and there was a fear that they were not going to have sufficient radiologists to read the chest x-rays they were taking of patients. So entrepreneurial or an, an AI professor in Brescia, Italy, he took the initiative you say, you know what, we are going to train quickly artificial intelligence to read the chest x-rays of patients and give us an artificial intelligence estimate of the, whether they have COVID and how far advanced it is, and in, in essence, to be a radiologist. So, great. Uh, he says, we'll take the AI to do that. But problem, in order to make an AI that can recognize COVID, in lung x-rays, you need a lot of training data, of course. You need a lot of x-rays where it's already identified. And because this came up so quickly, they had accumulated a fairly large number of x-rays, but they had not been getting patient permissions to use these x-rays uh, in medical investigations or studies. And of course, sadly, some of these patients had died and others had gone into quarantine and they could not find them. So. In Brescia, Italy, they had a real problem. They had a lot of chest x-rays sitting around of COVID patients. They could use those chest x-rays to train an artificial intelligence 
to diagnose COVID in incoming patients and save lives. They could do that, but they didn't have permission to use these x-rays. So they had to decide, are they going to violate the privacy of these patients, just take their x-rays and use them to train the AI, or are they going to let people die? Well, they went for the former and we're helping them sort of frame that decision, how it was made and what the ramifications are for the future and so on. But what I want to say initially here is it's not so much about what decision was right or wrong. It is instead that this kind of decision simply would not have been necessary before artificial intelligence. It has always been considered important that we protect the privacy of our patients, of course, but never before have we been able to do so much with patients' data. So this is going to create tremendous pressure on um, patients to perhaps sign releases, not just for COVID, but for everything, to sign releases to allow their data to be used in hospital investigations and so on. So we're going to have to deal with these questions and, and connected questions about whether we ever just take the data without the patient's permission and why. And we're going to have to deal with them in ways that are unfamiliar to us because of artificial intelligence and because of the new dilemmas that are being posed. So, so I think those are two reasons why artificial AI ethics is important. First, just to make sure that the, the machines serve us instead of us serving the machines. And also because we're, we're going to have to use it. We're going to have to make ethical decisions. We might just as well make them solidly, knowledgeably with education and thought instead of just kind of guessing. Those would be the two, the two main reasons for AI ethics. And then, you know, it's worth noting, I always say to, to companies uh, when we work with them that AI ethics helps innovation. It does not hurt innovation. It helps innovation. And it does because, first of all, it helps designers, AI designers, understand the human effects of their technology so it does better in the marketplace. And also it helps people anticipate the kinds of risks that might occur because of the use of the technology, privacy risks, and so on. But there you go. I'm, as usual, as a philosopher, I'm just going on and on. But that's that's a that's a general look at you know, what AI ethics is. Is the technology in terms of human values and why we want it? Uh, we want it to make sure that the machine serves us, and because we're going to have to do ethics anyway. That's the that's the short response. Yeah, and I think that point of it being a slightly different kind of ethics is is really important and very maybe hard for people to grasp at first. And I'll give you an example of my own experience the other day. So I do a lot of research on cryptocurrencies because I think it's the new hot thing and it's web 3.0 and it's going to change our lives. And a lot of that research happens on YouTube. And I said to my wife, look, every video that I recommend get recommended now by YouTube is telling me that Bitcoin is only going to go up. That's the only type of video that I'm getting. And that can seem like a benign thing, but it's, of course, uh, influencing my investment strategy to some extent because I am getting potentially a biased view. I'm not getting certainly someone saying the opposite of that because the algorithm is saying you probably would like to watch this video because other people who watch what you watched beforehand have also watched this. And so here is this group, me included, of people watching stuff on YouTube about Bitcoin being the most wonderful thing since sliced bread. And we might all go and put our life savings into Bitcoin and other sort of technologies like that. And that, that is a, a bias in itself uh, that we're being presented. And it's a curated bias that's uh, created for us simply because what we watched before, we thought it was interesting. We watched the whole thing. But YouTube's algorithm doesn't really know what it's doing. It doesn't really know what the video is about per se. It just knows that there's something in there that uh, I might like. And uh, I, I just find that really interesting and, and slightly scary. And this is what uh, we're all being affected by on a day-to-day -day basis with all these applications. Um, but we're not really sort of aware of it, I think. Is this a good thing or a bad thing that we have these ultra-targeted curations happening in our lives? Uh, I, yeah, right. I think that there are a lot of different answers to that. I think that the one sort of broad answer to your excellent example is, or one response, let's say, is the following. Something I always say about AI ethics and, and ethics generally is that ethics is not about 
right and wrong or deciding what is good or bad. That's just that's just something we tell people at dinner parties so they they stop talking to us. Uh, if, if we knew what was right or wrong, then we wouldn't need ethics. We wouldn't need someone like me here, right? We would just learn what is right and what is wrong, and that would be the end of it. Uh, but we don't know what's what's right or what's wrong. And in ethics, an ethicist cannot help you make that decision. But what we can do, what we try to do, is enter into exactly that experience that you were talking about and say, all right, how can we understand, or in what ways can we break down this, let's say the, the Bitcoin filter bubble, where you're just getting everyone saying Bitcoin is, I got wealthy and you can get wealthy too, and so on, right? And in what ways can we break that down and, and make sense of it, right? So I talked about autonomy, for example. I also talked about, we could also talk about something like privacy. It's only because YouTube is so aware of your personal information and perhaps specific aspects of your personal information that they're able to feed you these, these kinds of videos. So I think that the, the broadest answer is that the kinds of questions you're asking are terrific questions. And what ethics can help do especially for designers, is help them ask those questions themselves as they're going through as they're going through the process, with the goal being to understand in human terms what is happening here. But then with respect to the final question, well, should you invest in Bitcoin or not? <laughs> I don't know, right? I or is Bitcoin right, good or bad, or that kind of things? I, you know, I, I just have no idea. So that's so that's one kind of response. And then this this other part of the this fascinating experience, right, of the, the filter bubble or being constantly perfectly targeted. There is kind of a, a subtle question underneath this, uh, which is usually argued sort of quietly amongst philosophers, but I think that just about everyone can uh, have a sense of what it is because of this kind of targeting. This question is about human authenticity and whether or not I or you uh, or anyone has a, an identity or a sense of themselves, which is their true self, or, or is it by contrast that there is no such thing as a true me or a true you, and we just sort of build ourselves in one way or another out in the world depending upon how well or excuse me, depending upon what we come into contact with. So for example, it may be that, as you say, you find in yourself now that you're, you're grabbed and captivated by, by Bitcoin, but it's really not clear whether you are captivated by Bitcoin because you're the kind of person who is interested in Bitcoin stuff, and therefore you get into the videos, or it's because you're watching the videos that you've become the kind of person who's interested in, in Bitcoin stuff. So the, the under, underlying question is, are you any kind of person or are all of us just simply sort of flowing like, like pieces of wood in the water, changing who we are one way or the other, depending upon what, what, we're, what we are receiving? And so I think that this is going to be kind of a perhaps a surprising answer. I'm going to say that this kind of hyper focus is actually a good thing because it lets people really experience just like you did firsthand this question about whether or not there's something I really want out in the world, or is it that I'm just being completely influenced and overwhelmed by the, the kinds of things that are being given to me? I'm not sure if that's, uh, if, if, that's a, if that's a good answer or not. That's definitely on the philosophical side as opposed to the applied ethics side. So what you're saying is that uh, I myself is an algorithm and I'm being trained every day and I'm only as good as the training data that I get served, uh, in a sense. <laughs> I think you've understood my point perfectly. Yes, right. So there's, there's a lot of stuff. There's there are a lot of directions to to take these things. Yeah, it, it is so fascinating because they are, as you said, they're really novel questions for humans to answer, and they're different. And so. Indulge me here for a second. I'm going to be a philosopher for one minute and you can sh sh shoot it all down. But a lot of the decision making that we make, we call ethical decision making is really made by inference of our experiences in the past. And that's how societies work for forever. And human brains need to make uh, quick decisions on the information to hand. So that's why we see lion, we run away, that sort of thing. But also that's where other other issues like maybe uh, 
racism and other things that come in the past because we we have these rules in our heads that we are not necessarily aware of that just work out the way that we've we've grown up with them or we've uh, we've been trained to do things but a lot of these ai dilemmas are so novel and so different because we've never had this machine make decisions for us we used to do that with our brain with in a much more simplistic world how do we actually develop a framework for dealing with all these dilemmas but at a large scale yeah yeah that i think that the first thing is uh, i always say to people you should spend very little time doing ethics right i mean ex- exactly the point you're making if, if i spent my whole life doing ethics uh, i would never get out of get out of bed in the morning Right, I would be too concerned about things. Ninety-nine point nine percent of our decisions just have to be doing it the way everyone else does it, or following the law, or doing what my friends say I should do, and that kind of stuff. Because otherwise, nothing. Right, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So, so I think ethics is a is a kind of luxury, in the sense that we should unpack it and use it only in sort of scattered circumstances, and then when we use it, we use it intensely. Uh, but then when we go back to our regular lives, we just sort of have to respond to things in some sense the way we all always have. Of course, there are many senses, but in some sense, that's right. But then again, right, then there, there are these, these new dilemmas that, that, that come up. One of them that I'm, I'm working on now, and I'm, it's kind of puzzling me, I'm not sure what to do about this, is we are working with a, a different hospital with chatbots that are deployed for elderly, they tend to be elderly women because men die before women do in general. That's just a statistical fact. So there are many households, especially in Europe, but in the United States and Australia also, where you have elderly women who are alone and who become depressed, which is natural, of course. We have now chatbots, which are sufficiently advanced that we can use artificial intelligence to sort of light, lighten up these older, well, mainly women, but older, let's just say older people's lives. And we have also found that those chatbots tend to work better if the elderly believe they're actually talking with a real person. So, so the question is, do we lie about this? And do we tell the elderly person that, yes, it's a human being at the other end of this of this telephone that you're speaking into, even though it's actually a mechanically produced voice, a mechanically produced friend. It's very, it's, it's very difficult to know what to, what to do about this. We typically, before artificial intelligence, we, we have held, especially in the, in the healthcare arena, uh, we have held the idea of human dignity and something like honesty as we've placed that as a very high value. And we've wanted to say, look, even if there's a great benefit for the patient in terms of sort of happiness or felicity, even in that case, human dignity, right? The fact that this elderly person who is depressed still has value as a human being requires us to tell him or her the truth uh, and not lie to him or her, even if it's for his or her own good. But again, sort of like we saw in the case of privacy and COVID, the powers of AI are so great that we really need to go back and rethink that and, and reconsider whether or not maybe we should, in some of these cases, begin lying to patients on a large scale. I, I don't know, but, but maybe we should. We're going to have to ask it again because of the power of the technology. And then now, so that was a long introduction, but I'm going to answer your question. The question was, well, so, so how do we deal with these, with these kinds of problems? Or these dilemmas. And of course, there are, everyone will, will say correctly that this is a role that government should have. This is a role that uh, politicians and uh, public interest groups should have for a, for a discussion. But I myself have been working on a slightly different solution. And so this is going to be, even for, for, for a philosopher, I hope you will indulge me a little bit here. This will take just a little bit for me to, to sort of un, unpackage. Uh, but what I am trying to say is the following. I am trying to say that these k- kinds of dilemmas that artificial intelligence is producing are new and will need to be managed afresh. And while government might have some role, I think that people in society generally can also have a role even without 
actively participating in a discussion of these issues, and they can because of artificial intelligence. In other words, we have AI ethics dilemmas, and I believe we can use AI to solve some of those dilemmas by using natural language processing, sentiment analysis, machine learning, and similar to get a sense of what people in society think about these kinds of problems. Why? Because people are talking about them. You've just said this, you have this Bitcoin dilemma. You might write something about this question about targeting you with the Bitcoin videos. You might write something about that on your Twitter or on a blog you have. You might put something about it on a podcast like this. A watchdog organization may write a position paper on it. A government organization may provide a study about it. There is all kinds of uh, what the, as you know, the computer science people call unstructured data. There's all kinds of unstructured data that is out there in the world now of people simply talking amongst themselves about these dilemmas, right? No doubt with respect to the, the question of the chatbot and the elderly, uh, the family members are of course informed and they, they are asked whether or not they think that the doctor should lie to the patient. Uh, and so the family members probably also produce social media posts and other kinds of public discussions of this issue. Should we lie to grandma or not for the AI? My proposal is that given the vast powers of artificial intelligence to examine, to gather this unstructured data, analyze it, we can in fact get some kind of public sense of what we collectively as human beings think about these questions. And I call that decentralized AI ethics. Uh, it is the idea that instead of, I should be careful because I'm going to put myself out of a job, but it is the idea that instead of calling in a professional ethicist like me into the hospital and having me sit and think, well, should we lie to grandma or not? Instead of that, we can train machine learning to go out into the world and look at these questions and see what people think themselves. So I think then now we're coming to, I'm going to be able to answer your question. The question was, well, we have these new dilemmas and how can we respond to them? I believe that one of the best ways to respond to them in the future will be through what I'm saying is by using AI to apply AI ethics to AI. That is, we will be able to get a sense in a democratic society of what people actually think about these issues and through machine learning, convert their unstructured discussions into some kind of verdict or some kind of sense of what society believes is the right path to take. So that, that was a, a long answer. So the question was, <laughs> we have these new dilemmas and is there some way to resolve them? And what I'm trying to add to the conventional ways of resolving them uh, is I'm trying to say that, that we can use artificial intelligence to get a sense of what our communities think. And then the last point to add here is that I'm actually working on this project now at the University of Trento in Italy uh, with, with two very capable people, Giuseppe Riccardi and uh, Giovanna Meloni. And we are actually trying to train artificial intelligence to do some of these things. It is a long process, uh, but we are making a, some, we're taking some steps forward in that project. That's very fascinating. And it's such an interesting lens to the whole problem of uh, using AI itself to solve the, the challenges that AI presents. I mean, just that, it seems uh, very logical uh, at first when you hear it. And the other thing I picked up on there was, yeah, you, you, you're sort of saying, how do we democratize these decisions rather than having uh, the so-called experts come and, and decide for us, which is actually a different way to how society's probably worked in the last, yeah, I don't want to put a timeline on it, many, many hundred years that we have had these so-called experts who are scholars in some in some topic, uh, decide how we do things to some extent, at least. And um, we'll get into the, the regulatory framework in a minute. Uh, but before we get to that, I have a question regarding two lenses that you put uh, on AI ethics, uh, which I've uh, picked up from your research. So you talk about the concepts of, of fairness and solidarity as two lenses to view ethics through. Could you explain what these concepts are and how they apply to 
AI ethics specifically, uh, perhaps using some real-world examples? Sure. This is a terrifically important subject and the the question of of fairness in AI. And it's important just because, in general, most of us believe that that we should be we want to be treated fairly and we want others to be uh, treated fairly. Uh, but it's also important because like some of these other examples we've talked about, artificial intelligence is creating new sort of fairness dilemmas. So one example is, is, the, is the following. Going back to, I'll try to keep my, focused on just a few examples in this, in this discussion. Going back to the, the COVID case and the chest x-rays, the people who the doctors and the in the computer science people who were designing the system found that the system was malfunctioning on a small sort of subsection of their patients. And after some work, they discovered that these particular patients were patients who had apparently lived near a freeway for more than 10 years. And the result of that was this, the air pollution surrounding them had actually caused their lungs to contract slightly, but it was enough for the AI, it was enough that lung contraction was enough to throw off what diagnosis the artificial intelligence was doing of the the COVID uh, progress in the lungs. So that's an example of one example of the kind of bias that actually can happen in, in AI. And then let me go from that to a, a theoretical example. Uh, it could happen, let's say, uh, that when you're looking at patients that just through some statistical anomaly, patients whose last name are start with a W, like Williams or John Williams, Jane Wallace, Sarah Walters, whatever. It just turns out through crazy luck that those patients, even though they felt sick, when you took the chest x-ray, you discovered that they didn't have COVID. So a human being says, look, these Ws, how crazy is that? All these humans with W last names have these aberrational results. But the the machine does not know that. The machine says, oh, it looks like people whose last names start with W don't have COVID. That's what the training data told it. So when you go out in the world and you showed it an X-ray and the machine says, oh, this is from Stephen Williams, even though it might normally diagnose that X-ray as COVID, it overrules that because it's learned from the training data that people who have W in their last names don't have COVID. So the big problem with fairness in AI is that it can lead to inaccuracies, incorrect kinds of results, which we have no way of predicting as human beings. It's just a statistical anomaly at some point in the system that is creating these inaccurate results. So that's, that's one big problem with, with fairness. Now, there's also a second problem, and this is a problem of bias and unfairness, which is a little bit more conventional. This would tend to be bias or unfairness against sometimes racial minorities or in certain circumstances, women. And the reason for that is, is slightly different. In those cases, the artificial intelligence is processing the information correctly, but there's already racism in the data itself, which is being fed into the machine. Here, one example of that occurred with, with Amazon, and they had a hiring algorithm, and the hiring algorithm was trained upon Amazon employees, and Amazon employees, as it turns out, are overwhelmingly male. So when the artificial intelligence went out into the world to look at job applicants, it was preferring men over women simply because the training data looking back at what worked at Amazon found, well, there's a lot more guys who are successful employees than women, right? And that's a true fact. Uh, But the reason for that is because I'm not sure it's discrimination in the sense that People at Amazon were not saying, I want to hire men, not women, but there was a kind of social discrimination in the sense that many of the classes, computer science classes and so on, tended to be more welcoming toward men. And so men tended to flow into those directions and so on. So the second kind of fairness concern is one about how discriminatory data in our society today is being fed into the machine and the machine is just reproducing that. So fairness has the two, two different sides. And... As you could imagine, uh, anytime you talk about race and gender and that sort of thing, you get some pretty heated 
fairly heated arguments. And this leads then to, to your question about the difference between fairness and, and solidarity. Now, what happens is, and this is, I'm going to give a shout out here for AI ethics. I think that computer scientists, bless their souls, love them, but I think that they can get sloppy when it comes to ethics. And they can use words in ways that are insufficiently granular or insufficiently focused. And so they sometimes get into debates amongst themselves about, let's say, fairness. And the real debate, what's actually happening is not that they're disagreeing about fairness, but that the two sides are using different definitions of what counts as fairness. And therefore, they're sort of talking past each other with the result being that people become angry and frustrated and so on. So one of the things that I have been trying to do as part of my work in AI ethics is trying to untangle these different notions of fairness and put different labels on them, different names on them, so that p- people understand when they're talking about different concepts. And here, the, the two you brought up, are, I think, are fairly important. Fairness is the idea tracing back to Aristotle, that equals should be treated equally and unequals should be treated unequally. And this means basically everyone should get the same chance, right? Maybe we're not all equally talented. Maybe LeBron James is going to beat me in basketball, but I should get an equal chance. The ball should be the same for me as for him. The rim should be the same height for me, for him, et cetera. We both have the same chance. He's just better than I am. Solidarity, by contrast, is the idea that, and this comes from a philosopher named John Rawls in the 1970s in in Boston, he says that there should be a kind of min-max principle, excuse me, max-min is the way he phrased it, max-min principle in society. And he says that the maximum advantage should go to those who have the minimum advantage. In other words, to put this in contemporary political terms, there should be some kind of reverse discrimination. People who have suffered disadvantages, social disadvantages in the past, should get a kind of benefit today to make up for that disadvantage. And so that, that's the topic or the idea of, of solidarity. Now, I don't want to say that one or the other is correct, but I do want to say that frequently when people are having debates about fairness, one person on one side is saying, look, everyone has to be treated equally And therefore, if let's say it happens that men repay their mortgage debts more frequently or as a greater statistical uh, with greater regularity than uh, females, I'm just making this up, then men should get greater access to mortgage grants. That's fairness. Whereas by contrast, someone who proposes solidarity or wants to defend solidarity would say, well, look, uh, in the past, because women have not had as many workplace opportunities, of course, they have had some struggles historically with paying mortgages, but that's not true anymore. So we should adjust our algorithms to ensure that both men and women have the same opportunity to get a loan, even though it's true that simply statistically, women tend to repay less frequently than men, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe men repay less frequently than women. I'm just using this as an example. In order to distinguish between these two ways of thinking about how we approach imbalances in our society. Now, I don't want to advocate for one or the other, but I do believe that it's very important in artificial intelligence because so many decisions, loan decisions, hiring decisions, credit decisions, and distribution of medical healthcare decisions, and so on, so many of these decisions are going to be being made by artificial intelligence, we should at least make sure we understand when we're doing the distributing, when we're programming the algorithms to decide who gets care and who doesn't, who gets a loan and who doesn't, we should at least understand what the criteria are, what we're aiming for. Are we aiming for solidarity, which gives those who have had the least advantage in the past a sort of leg up and a sort of extra help to make up for that? Or are we going for fairness, where we're going to say the best way to manage it is to give everyone the same chance, and that's it. Again, I have no uh, preference for one or the other, but I think that to be successful in managing AI ethics problems, we need to be aware that both those two possibilities exist, and the algorithms can be constructed, can be weighted or adjusted 
to serve one or the other purpose. Uh, so that's that's the your question. I think referred to a paper I recently published about fairness and solidarity, and that's in a nutshell what what I'm talking about there. I'm trying to distinguish those concepts so that they can be used better by computer scientists as opposed to causing debates and frustration and anger. <laughs> that makes sense. It does make sense, and I think another important element there is that computer scientists and any other person designing something is actually uh, also designing ethics uh, inadvertently, uh, whether they like it or not. And uh, they have some responsibility for, for making those decisions or at least considering what they're doing when they do that. The problems we've had in Facebook are great examples of, of that, where the algorithm is optimized for, say, clicks or likes or that sort of thing, to potentially to the exclusion of any of these other ethical dilemmas. And the other thing I liked was this, this framework actually is something that people can relate to in the way that we do things already, because there are so many examples of where we have to distinguish between these two concepts of fairness and solidarity. I mean, I, I just I thought of uh, our tax systems as examples of that. So some people say oh, it's fair that everyone pays the same tax rate and whoever earns more than someone else shouldn't pay more just because they have to have an ability to have a higher income, where some people say, no, no, the people who earn the most should give back more to society and, and pay a larger share of roads and healthcare and whatever else is, is paid in that society. And uh, you'll see different countries have different versions of this. And so it's, it's something that brings it down to earth a bit, I think, for, for people who haven't had to deal with these AI conundrums before. And then, uh, and then again, the problem so frequently with artificial intelligence is that it is sort of a black box. So if we don't have awareness of these kinds of choices that we need to make and we do make, whether we're aware of them or not, if, if we do not go into the construction with an understanding of the kinds of decisions we are making, then we will not ever see that the decisions are being made, right? We'll just see results come out and that, that will be the end of it. Uh, so that that's critical reason why AI ethics is important. And also sort of the point you're making too, I think that most of us sort of enjoy talking in, in most situations about these kinds of social questions of how taxes should be set up and how we should balance our resources in, in society. And I think also that, that AI, I have found that computer scientists really enjoy doing AI ethics once you begin talking with them about it, once you can show them that it's not, AI ethics is not, about telling you what you cannot do or trying to constrain you somehow. No, it's just about helping you understand what you are doing so that you can do it better or more in accord with your own purposes. But anyway, so there I'm doing, I'm just doing some promotion for AI ethics there as a, as a discipline. Good. We need more promotion of it, in my opinion. And James, I think we should move into what governments can do in this area because We've already talked about Facebook just then as an example, but many of these issues and dilemmas come up in a public forum only once the damage has been done. And historically, we've had the time as a society uh, to introduce legislation to proactively manage ethics before issues arise. But right now, it seems almost impossible for legislators to keep up with this expansion in applications and different ways of using AI. So what should governments do to regulate in this area? I have been, there's always some question that comes in these interviews where you suddenly you are filled with dread and you fear you fear what kind of answer you could give. This this one is a is for me it is a stumper, right? I think that there is the general practice that what governments try to do is they take the old rules that we've had and stretch them to fit the new technological reality. I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to, to work here because as we've been sort of discussing in these examples the, uh, that we've had, the new reality is so different that it's very difficult to see how traditional regulatory kinds of agencies are going to be able to manage these kinds of problems that we are confronting. So, so for example, that one that I think is really very human is this, the problem of the Tesla and the autopilot or the auto driving feature, which is strange because on the one hand, I believe that most agree that the autopilot in Tesla is in fact much safer 
than human driving. That is, if everyone just used the autopilot to Tesla, we would have fewer traffic accidents, many fewer traffic accidents immediately. But it's also true that when the Tesla has an accident, it can just be a bizarre kind of horrific thing that a human being would easily have avoided. And one sort of classic and horrific example is one, one of the first notable Tesla fatality accidents was in Florida. And the Tesla was driving down the road and a tra- a 18-wheel truck pulled across the road. And the truck trailer was painted entirely white. And the Tesla read that as a cloud or as fog. So the Tesla, the guy in the car was on, was texting or something or sleeping or something silly. Uh, and the Tesla literally did not slow down, just rolled right under. I don't want to get too graphic here, but imagine the car rolling right underneath the truck, shearing off the top with the accompanying human damage and horrific accident that, that anyone could have, any human driver could have avoided, but the machine failed completely. So how can a government government manage that? I have to admit, I, I am flummoxed. They, they will have to find some, some different way of approaching these problems. Now, I myself think, sort of as a, as a quick footnote here, and connecting to what we were talking about earlier, the decentralized AI ethics, I myself think that this might be an area where investors, uh, people who are just buying and selling stock, you know, Bitcoin, whatever, uh, investors are going to potentially play a larger role because investors will be looking at these kinds of accidents, these kinds of disasters, and they are going to be pressuring companies to make sure that their products are not liable for or not creating these kinds of really horrific human disaster accidents. It might be a Tesla driving into a truck for no reason. It might be for some, just a, a kind of much more trivial example would be the chat bots that suddenly start speaking all kinds of important things, or it might be personal information used for some malevolent end. There are all kinds of ways that AI might cause human difficulties. And companies, they have a word for this. They call this risk. <laughs> they say, well, there's always the risk for Tesla that our cars will have these kinds of bad accidents and will be sued or something. And so I wonder whether or not this might be a kind of area where private investors have a role in regulation would not be the word, but in helping companies aim their products in ways that serve both the corporate interest of profit and the social interest of well-functioning technology. And so I think that the idea of AI applies AI ethics uh, to AI, I think that that also could be used as a kind of tool for investors. That is, if we could create good ethical profiles of AI companies and distribute those, investors could use that information to put their money in companies with less risk, with ones that are going to be less prone to ethical kinds of shortfalls. So my general response to the question about how do we try to manage this situation, this is maybe just my personal bias. My general response is instead of looking to experts like me, we should look to the public in general. And instead of looking at governments, regulators, we should look at investors, people who are out in the world actually doing things, investing their money in one company or another, and give those people the information, investors, I mean, give them the information they need to orient their money or allocate their money toward those kinds of companies that do well on an ethical level and not just a technical level or not just a financial level. As a quick footnote to this footnote, we already have a kind of investing like that. It's called ESG, Environmental Societal Government Investing. I think we could take something like that model, recreate it for artificial intelligence companies and create those and then produce that kind of ranking. And to say a company like Apple, Apple has a certain amount of risk in terms of AI ethics, has a certain score in terms of AI ethics and Facebook too, and Twitter and Tesla and so on. And in that way, it could be investors, again, through the allocation of money who orient growth toward those companies that do well in terms of 
the social dilemmas and personal disasters that AI causes. I suspect that we might have more luck with that than with government regulators, but who knows? <laughs> I might be wrong about that. Yeah, the thing that I'm sitting here thinking is that AI actually puts ethics on a completely different pedestal in society. We have to actually discuss and weigh up a lot of the things that we take for granted in the future. Uh, it's really fascinating. So just a simple example, or maybe it's not so simple once you get into it, but that example of the 18-foot the truck that drove across the road and was assumed to be a cloud, if a human was in that car and they still had an accident, was that the fault of the truck driver pulling out too early uh, when someone was coming across the, the road there? Or is it the driver not being aware enough? We sort of have a framework for that now, and we also have insurance that's tied to that. So a lot of the, the risk guardrails we put around society are based on insurance and, and us getting some monetary compensation for when things don't go the way we hope they would. And, but in this case, yeah, is it Tesla's fault that, that they hadn't built the algorithm properly and therefore uh, everything is Tesla's fault? And therefore, so say we, we set the algorithms free to, to run society. Um, is the ultimate insurer the, uh, the person who builds the algorithm or the company that uh, released the algorithm? Or, or do we still have a space for, for things like insurance policies and, and human fault? Right. Yeah, and then it gets, it gets more complicated because many of these self-driving cars also are built to learn from their human owner. So things like how quickly the car accelerates, how close the car follows behind others in traffic, the individual car can actually, to some extent in the future, to greater extent, can actually learn from the way the car is driven by, as I say, the, the human owner. So that means when you have an accident, you have the people who could potentially be at fault. You could have the AI designer, you could have the human driver, you could have the truck driver. And it is a real tangled mess of possible responsibility. And I do not envy the future reality of the insurance of insurance executives, because they are going to have to try to pull those things apart. And I, I think that maybe that will just be slow, slow walking, right? Just kind of going case by case through it. The, as I say, the solution I propose to contribute to this is to produce ethics scores of AI companies with the idea that investors can then orient their money toward score companies that have better ethical performance, and that will help. But that's not going to solve the, that's not going to solve all the problems as you're as you're pointing out, <laughs> there's a lot of work to do out there. Yeah, so fascinating. And uh, good luck, insurance companies. So when, we, when we, we're now getting to, uh, yeah, you could call it the business end of things, how can businesses and, and public organizations, I suppose, get prepared for managing and governing the ethical implications of using AI in, in their day-to-day? -day? How can they do that? I think that there... Uh, I have been working with a group out of the uh, big data lab in, in Frankfurt, Germany. This is a collection of computer scientists and doctors, and there are two philosophers, I think, or I'm kind of the ethics, and along with ear milled, the two of us are sort of the ethics leads in that group. And what we do is we try to do something called ethics by design in AI. That means that we work with uh, computer scientists, and most of our work is done in the medical field. A lot of my examples today have been in, in medicine. We work with them from the beginning of their products, from the moment that they're designing an AI system. And we have discussions with them that are really very similar to the discussions you and I are having right now. They're somewhat more structured because we use a set of ethical principles that we always have in the background, autonomy, they're for AI ethics, there are three general sets of principles. There are the principles that apply to individual ethics. That's autonomy. Does the AI serve human freedom, uh, privacy, and dignity? Does the AI serve human dignity? Then there are some social principles, fairness, solidarity, social well-being. Does the AI serve society? Does it help create fairness? Then there are technical principles, which is the performance of the machine, and also accountability that traces back to the 
discussion we were just having. To what extent can we trace accountability for when things go wrong? To what extent can we explain how the AI worked? A lot of times we can't, uh, but to what extent can we explain it so we can attribute responsibility? And so we have this frame of principles. And we discuss with respect to the product that's under consideration, how that product interacts with these principles. So the question is, how can companies prepare themselves? I think that there's not a simple answer to that. There's not a checklist of things they can do, but by working with professional AI ethicists, they can at least be aware of the kinds of problems they are going to face, just like we have become aware of them here, you and I, in this discussion. So when you have a product, you talk about it, look at how it works, how it intersects with these different principles, and what the kind of risks and opportunities are for that product in the, in the marketplace and in human reality. Um, so I think that the, the good news and the bad news that I have for companies is, uh, on the one hand, is there something that companies can do? Yes, there is. Uh, they can bring someone in or a group of people in who understand what ethics is, understand the technology, and can work alongside the designers, accompany them as they produce their products. That's the good news. But the bad news is, you know, there's kind of like I said at the start, there's no certain right or wrong answers. There's no easy solutions. Uh, there are going to be risks and uncertainties out there. And the best that we can hope to do is understand what those risks are and what kind of ethical values and arguments we are going to use to make decisions when confronted with them. That's the most we can hope for. There's no guarantee that the decisions are going to be right or wrong. So just another example, you, we were talking about insurance. It came into my mind. This is an example that I think is, is really very good. More and more now we have dynamic insurance, which allows the rates that an individual pays to go up or down, depending upon the choices he or she uh, makes. So I try to think of health insurance and a skier who goes, <laughs> just talking to someone in Italy who's a skier, and he tells me that he takes double black diamond runs, you know, the hardest runs. And so he goes up there to the top of the double black diamond run in the Italian Alps, and his phone locates that he's there at the ski resort. It makes perfect sense for his insurer to send him a quick notification. Look, if you're going to do this double black diamond run, guess what? Your insurance premium just went up. It just doubled, right? Which makes a lot of sense. And this gives the insurance client, the user, it gives the, the user a kind of autonomy, right? I can decide for myself whether my insurance rates will go, will go up or down. But on the other hand, the, the whole reason we have insurance in the first place is so that we can take risks like doing the double black diamond, right? I want health insurance so that it, I can go down knowing that if I break my leg, everything will be okay. So this kind of dynamic insurance, the question is, does this actually help the users have more autonomy, more self-determination, or does it take away from their autonomy and their self-determination? I don't know what the answer is to that, but I know that someone who's an ethicist who's working along with computer scientist would be able to pose that question, whatever decision is made. As I say, the, the, only, the only solace I can provide is that at least you understand the dilemmas you are facing. As for the decisions, well, that's, that's something people have to take uh, responsible, responsibility for themselves. Yeah. And the way we design, well, in, in this case, a lot of it will be digital applications, but uh, in many cases, it's also interfacing with physical objects, so Internet of Things, uh, like cars and so on. The design principles are, are very based in ethics in so many cases now, more so ever than, than it has been in the past, because we're not just building mechanical machines. We're actually building, we're building decisions for you as the user before you even get to it. Uh, it's a very, very fascinating topic. And I think for business leaders out there, uh, this is something that you will have to deal with whether you like it or not in the next many years. So uh, best you start uh, developing an interest for it. If you uh, search AI ethics on YouTube, I'll tell you that probably you'll get lots of videos and uh, you'll, you'll never get out of that loop again, uh, just like my Bitcoin, <laughs> my Bitcoin loop. Yeah. James, we're, uh, we're at the end almost. Uh, I have two more questions for you. But before we get to those, is there anything else that you'd like to 
comments you like to make on on this topic of AI ethics that you you haven't gotten across? I, I think that covers many of the many of the important topics. I will add just very quickly that I think on the subject of uh, companies having to get used to this, I do see that in Europe now because of government, we were talking about regulation rules, uh, the government is not telling companies, AI companies, what they should do or should not do in Europe. But more and more, they are saying that companies must accompany technological innovation with a kind of ethics report or with a kind of ethics policy. So we do see that in Europe, at least, ethics is not a choice. Now, just yesterday, I was talking with computer scientists at my school in New York City, Pace, and I asked, I said just that. I said, look, in Europe now, I get calls all the time from companies because they need some ethicists to help them along legally with this, this process of their development. What's going on here in the United States? And the response I got was that they are seeing that wave just beginning to rise in their sense is that, that the people at Apple and Tesla and so on, they are going to need to produce ethical reports about their own innovation to go alongside the technological ones and the financial ones, they are going to start needing to produce those reports in the next few years. So I think to underline the point you just made, this is my last my last point, I think that I hope the business leaders who've listened to this have enjoyed the discussion because I think it will be something that they probably will have to be involved in, whether they enjoyed it or not, in the next, in next few years. Absolutely. And now to my last two questions, James. So on Leaders of Analytics, I always ask the guests to pay it forward. Uh, and the question I ask is, uh, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Okay, I have one for you. Uh, we'll see. But maybe given that you've seen all the Bitcoin things, maybe uh, you all actually have seen some of this the videos. I was thinking of a guy named Daniel Liebau, L-I-E-B-A-U, I think. He works at a company called Lightbulb Capital. And interesting, thoughtful guy. He is curious about blockchain contracts and Bitcoin. So I think it might work well for, <laughs> I'm almost recommending it for you as much as for your show. I think it might be very interesting for you if you're interested in Bitcoin as a way of taking a lot of that knowledge that you've, you've attained and sort of expanding it a little bit into the e-contracts and other parts of our experience where we're going to increasingly see the blockchain technology, which is, of course, sort of a side of artificial intelligence technology, just at least the idea of confirming in some way that doesn't burn up trillions of kilowatts of energy, <laughs> confirming whether or not transactions are legitimate or not. So his name is Daniel Liebau. I would recommend him for you. That sounds like a perfect guest for the show. So thank you very much for that recommendation. Now, last question. Where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Oh, thanks. Yes, I think probably the easiest would be James Brousseau. That's James and then B as in boy, R-U-S-S-E-A-U dot net. That's my curriculum vita and so on. And then if you're like me, if you like serendipity, you can just sort of Google and see and see and see what comes up. Wonderful. James, thank you so much for being on the show. It's such an interesting episode and my brain's just going around and around right now. I uh, have so many thoughts in my head that I'm going to apply in my daily life as a data scientist and also uh, take my, my company down a certain path now, I think, uh, after having had the conversation with you. So uh, you've helped at least one data scientist out there uh, think differently about the, the ethics of AI. Thank you so much for being on the show and all the best. Thanks for having me, John. Be honest.